We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Congratulations to Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen, who gets to fly around the moon. Too bad we all can't go to get some peace and quiet. Here's Scott Thompson. I'm in. I'll just go up and snooze the whole time. It'll be great. I'll make breakfast for everybody. Tang, who wants Tang? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Spinning the Neil Young. Uh, two different versions of the same song. How cool is that? Uh, Neil Young coming in at 133 on Rolling Stones top 200 singers of all time. It's funny that maybe you know if you were if you were to tell Canadians that Neil Young made a Rolling Stone top 200 singers list of all time and Celine Dion didn't. What do you think those Canadians would say? Shh, listen quietly. You can hear it now. All right. Feel free to jump. <laughs> All right. I got, I wasn't going to talk about this right away, but I'm going to talk about it now because I keep seeing it out of the corner of my eye. Watching Trump go to New York is like watching OJ Simpson's uh, slow speed chase. Like, really? And then all of a sudden it's the plane coming. What are we, are we waiting for the first space shuttle to land here? That's what it reminds me of. It's like, there's the plane in the distance. We don't even know if it's his. Could be any plane <laughs> flying in. Uh, unbelievable. But yeah, and before that it was like this parade of suburbans. You know, quite, kind of like what you, what we saw in Ottawa there. No, not during the Freedom Convoy, but when the U.S. president arrived, the, the, the real one now. Uh, so anyway, uh, Trump is on his way from Florida to New York. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, when something blows up, we'll let you know. But uh, right now, the slow motion chase, the plane ride and landing at New York City is uh, is all over the place. Uh, but of course, the really big news, Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen uh, will join the team of Artemis 2 and take off and fly around the moon the next time, the three, the third mission, they will actually land. So very exciting announcement uh, coming out of uh, Houston and Nassau today as uh, Jeremy Hansen gets named. Get ready. You're going to be hearing that name a lot. Uh, just like Chris Hadfield and uh, and all the rest. Mark Garneau, who uh, will make history in space uh, with the first Canadian astronaut on a moon lunar mission. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, Liberals are now announcing that uh, the carbon tax uh, will cost Canadians after saying for years that it isn't. That from the uh, Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, I think the Liberals are using green uh, energy, green environment just like the McGinty and Wynn Liberals were. Uh, it, it's great to save the planet. We're all trying to do that, but they know as soon as you mention that, you will give them money, and they are using this to raise funds more than they are to save the planet, and I believe that's been the issue for the last couple of decades. Uh, what else we got? Uh, oh, yeah, and that balloon that they shot down, apparently it was uh, transmitting signals back to China. It was also controlled, and Finland is uh, looks like it's going to go uh, join NATO. So great news there. All right. Uh, obviously, the big news, uh, Jeremy Hansen, the Canadian uh, astronaut, now going on the lunar mission around the moon. Uh, here's what he had to say about science in Canada. Our scientists, our engineers, the Canadian Space Agency, the Canadian Armed Forces, across government, all of our leadership, 
working together under a vision to take step by step. And all of those have added up to this moment where a Canadian is going to the moon with our international partnership, and it is glorious. And uh, on how he feels about going. I am left in awe of being reminded what strong leadership, setting big goals with a passion to collaborate and a can-do attitude can achieve. And we are going to the moon together. Let's go. Here we go. All right. Uh, so that's the big story we're watching today as the uh, the crew was announced earlier on today. And then, of course, the other big story. And, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, you know, like I said to Will, it's like, unless anything happens here, don't even bother. Uh, but man, oh, man, uh, the U.S. is covering it. And so is Canada. The trip to the airport uh, and then the trip on the plane and then seeing the plane come in and land. It reminds me of a combination between the um, the O.J. Simpson slow motion chase and and also the first shuttle coming in for a landing. We all got to see spacecraft land for the first time uh, on a runway. But um, nonetheless, uh, we'll be following the story, and as things start to progress, we will certainly uh, follow it for you. All right, uh, still to come, I'm going to talk some racing with Eric Thomas coming up next. Also, Elections Ontario wants to ban opinion polls leading up to the election. I always wondered about this. Uh, obviously, the day of, they can't release anything new, but right up till a couple well, right till election time and the day of, they can uh, make all this information. Does it, sw- does it sway voters? Many say, no, it doesn't sway me, but mm, this is what they're looking at. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, a report from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce urging the federal government to build infrastructure that will make the extraction and exploration of liquid natural gas feasible. The world is screaming for it. We have to save the planet instead of just saving the Liberal Party. You know, it's fascinating. We can do do this with uh, with the FASCO. We, we can take clean Canadian natural gas to use to help them get off coal, but we won't use that for the rest of the world to save the planet, which is fascinating. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. You know, I'm a racing fan, and, and, and if you follow the show at all, uh, you know that um, I, I love the beating and the banging, but man, I got to admit, I'm turning into an open-wheel guy with this F1 stuff, and every time I, I, I get I, I get that, that feeling and excitement, I have to call Eric Thomas and have him calm me down. Uh, Raceline Radio Network, uh, you can hear him every Sunday night right here on CHML. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. We're, we're good. You're, you're calling on me to calm you down. <laughs> that's a little, that's a little weird, like pouring gas on the fire there, you know? So honestly, it's like Friday, uh, what was it? Saturday night. I, I start, oh my goodness, it's live because, uh, Melbourne's 12 hours ahead of us. I start it, watching, morning, I, yeah. I start watching it at like midnight and yeah. it's like, I got to shut this off. No. Anyway, uh, it was, yes, it was great. It, I did watch it. It was great, but I fell asleep. Uh, anyway, uh, so then the next day, the next day I'm watching, uh, the NASCAR race is kind of on as it goes because it's an all-afternoon thing. The IndyCar yep. before that, and I'm reading your report, which comes across every Sunday night mm-hmm. that talks about all the racing results and stuff. And you said it yourself in your in your clip here that uh, you know, great race. However, no one in the stands. I'm watching F1. They're talking about four hundred thousand yeah. in Australia over the course yeah. of the weekend. Yeah. How do you explain it, Eric? Well, and I've asked you, all, and I've asked you this a million times. Well, yeah, exactly, and it's it's all part of that Netflix thing, but it's it's also intriguing um, because of, of that and the added attention there, and, and realizing that 
you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of drama that we've all been plugged into over the years with Formula One. And, and now with the stuff in behind the scenes, there's, there's a lot more swearing going on than you can get on, on camera, obviously. But it, it's, they're, they're human beings in a very intense situation. And, and the drama between them and among them is, is something that is, you know, akin to one of these survival contest shows. And yeah. people have just found it to be, you know, a, a parallel to that almost. But- you know, and so, but you know, I'm a racing fan, and yeah. and you know, at the end of the day, one of the reasons I didn't like F1 is because you know a guy was a mile head out in front of every, everybody else. He'd that. win; it was still very boring. That. I still have that. Yeah. And the thing, and the thing with NASCAR and with Indy is it's so much about keeping the pack together, keeping the cars the same, almost yeah. like kit car racing. And they feel that that is the way to make it more successful. However, I think what makes F1 more exciting, and I remember Todd Lewis and I arguing about this back in the day everybody argues the, about it it's the technology it's yep. the story the storyline and the fact what what car can do to raise its uh you know its position within the field so to speak it's not about um making the racing the same and it's funny because every time i listen to nascar and a little bit as i'm reading the reviews on the indie race which yep. obviously was a good one was, was that you know everybody right. talks about the racing everybody talks about you know how making it it's like they never talk about the f1 all they talk about in f1 is beating the other guy and it, well, it's interesting yeah. how they're working to, i think they're working too much on trying to make it as you've said it many times an ed- an entertaining show as opposed to just a damn car race well exactly and and let it go and evolve by itself naturally and the other thing too and just along the lines of what you're talking about scooters the fact that formula 1 is the only series out there that isn't a spec series that you leave yeah. it up to the manufacturers to come up with their own design within the rules all the indy cars are all the same they have pretty much yeah. you know, the same kind of engines one one is a Honda, the other one is a Chevy, but in Formula One, you design your own car from the ground up, and if the Red Bull, which it is with Adrian Newey designing it, and the Honda power plants, which are not supposed to be in Formula One, but they're still using the Hondas, they now say it's a Red Bull motor, but it's a Honda engine, if that package is vastly different than the Ferrari package, than the Mercedes package, which it is at the moment, you've got yourself a runaway, but it's the only racing series out there that isn't spec, unless you're going to talk sports cars, and you know where you've got a Lexus yeah. versus a Ferrari versus a BMW versus a Porsche versus whatever. Um, yeah. That's the only series out there where it is not a spec series, where the cars aren't all the same, the engines aren't all the same, and you have that in NASCAR, you have that in IndyCar, but you don't in Formula One. It used to be that way in NASCAR when they were actual stock cars, and if Ford came out with a a Torino that was really slippery through the air and good power, that thing dominated. If Chevy did the same thing, Buick, you know, Pontiac, whatever it was, but now they're all the same shape, basically. They're all the same frames. The motors are all the same. So F1 is the only one where someone can get out there and from a clean sheet of paper design a car that's just going to you know kick everybody's ass and win everybody and and win all the races or just about and and have that domination that's like another reason why it has become so intriguing for people because it's heads up you know the, so, and, and like you, like you said the races are only Two hours long, the NASCAR yeah. thing, three to four hours. So you can sit there and watch this thing. The IndyCar race was unbelievable. 200 miles an hour, they're bumping wheels side by yeah. side, three wide, and the race is done in two hours. You know, yeah. So that's the yeah. other good part of that. But it's so, so, with so what can Indy racing or even NASCAR learn from F1? Can, should they go back to that? Should they get away from the spec type of racing? Well, uh, you know, 
I, I don't know whether you can at this point, because the other factor in, in this now is this battery stuff and the green stuff, and that's even going to enter into F1, and that's going to change the complexion of this. Whether you can have guys like you know Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt designing their own indie cars, I don't know whether they go back to that. I think they can do probably some changes in terms of the mechanics and how they run their races. And, and again, on the IndyCar side of it, it brings up that argument that, man, these things, you know, they race on the street. They race in Toronto. They race in, you know, parking lots or wherever they are. Uh, but, you know, these things really belong on a high-speed oval where these guys can just go flat out all the way around and have and have really good racing. Can they change the technology on the cars? I don't know because all of a sudden now we're being pressured into taking away internal combustion and going all electric. So I don't know what you change. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, an, it's an evolutionary thing. I think the simplest thing, Scott, is to be a race fan like you and I and just enjoy all of it, you know. And you can enjoy what, what, what F1 is doing. You can enjoy what IndyCar is doing. You, enjoy what, you still enjoy what NASCAR is doing and what, what's going on with the sprint cars and the, and the guys with the modifieds on dirt tracks and then the late models in the short tracks in, in and around our burgs here. So that's a, if, you're a, if you're a fan, you can sort of just get into all of it, and it sort of evolves, right? But it, it, it's that intrigue with F1 because of the, of the TV series, and you find yourself addicted to it, and you, and you get attached to the drivers, and you kind of understand their personalities, and it's, uh, it's almost So, like, Eric, yeah, and we uh, talked about this we talked about this because i know you're not a big fan of the show and and i think that the show <laughs> the show got me re-interested or interested sure. in it but yeah. it's the racing that's kept me coming back not exactly. the tv show exactly. and yeah, i mean and you know the, maybe that's yeah. the way we got to get back to i mean well, and that, but see, that's the bottom line and i've mentioned this a million times too no matter how you get there you got to make sure that the elephants in your circus are very entertaining you've got the best show you can put on on the racetrack and, and f1 has that they just happen to have this television show wrapped around it which enhances it but you know the the IndyCar guys have got to make sure that the product on the racetrack is good and it's entertaining and so do the NASCAR guys and sort of the people at Flamborough Speedway and Meritville Speedway they got to make sure that the show is good and it's run quickly and it's not doesn't run too late and all those kinds of things just have to make sure you, you make sure that, that that the show is okay because if the show is okay you can get around the rest of it and they just have to make sure that it's entertaining and no one's getting boring and no one's turning it off and no one's not going anymore because they find it trite it needs to as you say but the beginning of the show here it's got to be entertaining because if it isn't it'll it'll go away eric thomas raceline radio network sunday nights right here on chml always fun eric thanks for the time be well you too scooter we'll do it next time buddy look forward to it you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Elections Ontario talking about banning public opinion polls in the lead up due to the uh, in the lead up to elections due to the amount of influence they can have over the results. Is that a good idea? Bad idea? How much information is too much? Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, Professor Emeritus, Politics, Public Administration, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now, Wayne. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Your thoughts on this, Wayne? Polls, good idea, bad idea? Bad idea. Uh, this, this notion that uh, if uh, people didn't know what the polls were saying, they might take a greater interest or they wouldn't see it as a uh, horse race in which they may or may not have a, have a, a horse that they want to see win. I, I, it's, it's treating, uh, it, it's a symptom, but it's treat, trying to treat a symptom and it's not the disease. So, in other words, banning, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, banning polls up to uh, election date, not, you're not for that? 
No, not foreign. I don't think it will achieve the uh, hope for uh, uh, outcomes that uh, the people advancing it have have suggested. What are the reasons for this? Because I read in, in one of the articles that it was they were attributing low voter turnout to the polls, which I thought was fascinating. Usually I thought low voter turnout means people don't want change. When people want change, they show up. Do polls affect how many people show up? Well, first of all, let, let's 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 get this keep this in, in kind of a straight line. Uh, yeah, they seem to believe that uh, uh, this constant polling has the effect of depressing turnout. If you see that the party you want is twenty eight points behind, then you might decide not to go, hmm. etc. So that's that's the extensive logic underlying this approach. But it's it's it doesn't make any sense. Uh, people don't vote because they don't feel like they matter. They don't think that their point of view matters, that it's like that old uh, commercial, you say, I'm a somebody. And political scientists use the term political efficacy to refer to this sense of empowerment that people have and that when they have it, they participate. The problem here isn't just not as many Ontarians vote as used to be the case. It's also true that not as many Ontarians belong to a political party, identify with any political party. At one point, 75% of the electorate you could attach to one of, one of the three or four political parties that were competing at the time. Today, that number's under 50, way under 50. People don't see the system responsive to them. So if it's not responsive to them, why should I be responsive to it? And in the end, if you're restricting polling, are you not restricting information? Well, you know, the truth is, is, is that, uh, you know, the, the information will, will come out in any number of ways. I, I don't think, for example, the ban could, could extend to, say, political advertising by a political party in which it makes it, it demonstrates just how popular it is currently with the people of the province as the campaign winds down. Uh, you know, as I said, this is a solution in search of the problem. They don't have the problem right, so not a surprise. The solution doesn't fit either. Why do you think this is happening now? Why is this a discussion now, Wayne? Well, it, it's happening now because the truth is uh, we are running into a problem. You know, democratic societies are predicated on the, on the notion that, in fact, public decides the nature and form that government should take and the, the issues that it attends to. And there's, you know, there's declining evidence for that. Uh, you know, truth is, voter turnout has been on a decline, gentle, but not accelerating at other times, rebounding a bit, but then going back down for 75, 80 years. So and, how do we uh, fix that? How do we are, fix that, Wayne? How do we change that? Yeah. If I could answer that, I, I, I could get work from virtually any political party in the developed world. It's not a problem <laughs> for just Canada. The American data looks the same. The British data looks the same. Uh, lots of countries, developed countries, have the same challenge. And, you know, it, what it represents, you know, we can say people are naive, but I don't think that's the case. I think for in many cases, our opinions don't matter. Government, it makes decisions on the basis of many other calculations aside from what Wayne Petrosi thinks or Scott Thompson thinks. 
You said earlier, uh, people, uh, less team politics at play here. It seems that there's more of that in the sense that we're divisive. Either you're on this side or you're on that side. And there's no, there's no middle. There's no, um, agreeing to disagree here. Uh, where is team politics now? Because it seems as if the leaders are pushing us to pick a team. Well, you know, but what we have is certainly uh, this outside inf- outsized influence of social media, which makes it seems as if the country is divided into one or two or three silos of people mm. who are angry and don't talk to each other, but only talk among themselves. I think the, the reality is a lot more complicated, and certainly uh, that is not an accurate, correct uh, uh, representation of what's actually going on. Most people, Scott unlike you and I, don't pay attention to this, don't watch much news. We get our information from any number of sources, neighbors, news feeds, social media, wherever. And so we've got this very fragmented infrastructure, ecosystem, if you will, of information sources. And But most of us, you know, it's all background noise. We got our lives to lead. We've got jobs we need to do. We have things we need to do with our families. And that's what, the mo- for the most part, what we focus on, because we've come to believe, many of us, that it wouldn't matter if we did get involved, if we did try to make ourselves heard. The people who run the government aren't going to pay attention. Hmm. Wayne Petrosi with us, Professor Emeritus, political or sorry, politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, Elections Ontario, floating the idea of banning uh, public opinion polls due to the influence they could have uh, just weeks before an election. Wayne, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. You too. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked a lot about uh, climate change on this show and how I believe we should be focusing on getting the world off of coal, similar to what we're seeing in Hamilton with the FASCO, uh, using uh, clean uh, liquid natural gas and electricity to reduce, I believe, their carbon footprint by 60% by by removing coal, which is, you know, you look at the FASCO, that's exactly what we should be doing. That is a model for the world. Uh, the prime minister sees a business case for that, but he doesn't see it for the rest of the world, which unfortunately isn't polluting way more than we are. Uh, and, and now, and, and we've heard, we, we've seen the German chancellor come over here and ask for gas to get turned away. Japanese pr- uh, prime minister, I believe as well. Um, so everybody's asking for it, but it seems we're just turning our backs on what the reality is. And now a new report from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce urges the federal government to get on track and build infrastructure that will make the extraction and exportation of liquid natural gas feasible. Uh, how many more of these reports do we need? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, uh, and doing much better now that there's a, <laughs> quite a chorus of those calling for an end to the uh, repression of Canadian energy when the world needs so much of it. I thought it was incredibly hypocritical when the Prime Minister showed up here at DeFasco. We think this is a great idea, of course, uh, to get uh, these industries off of coal, but never mentioned anything. 
thing that Enbridge would also be installing a uh, natural gas line to aid in all of this and then brag that you don't see Russia or China or even Europe doing this when, of course, they don't have the natural resources that we do. Uh, why is he not using DeFasco as a world model? Isn't this what we should be doing around the world? Well, that is the business case now, isn't it? DeFasco has just proven it. Uh, and yeah. many others are doing the same thing quietly behind the scenes. They're just moving on. This prime minister is caught in this fixation uh, that somehow Canada is bad, the rest of the world good, and that uh, we have to shut down everything to meet uh, some kind of pyrrhic goal, which at the end of the day isn't working out very well. Our emissions continue to rise regardless. But it uh, is not lost, I think, on everyone that, you know, what if Canada? You know, the big question, what if 18 proposed projects for LNG uh, had already been realized. What would this mean for the world uh, and India and China and the rest of the uh, industrializing world as far as Canada's ability to get vast amounts of uh, natural gas to everywhere Uh, on top of our trading partners? It would have meant, uh, above all, uh, a lowering of those global emissions and, more importantly, uh, and significantly, uh, tens of billions of dollars to pay for health care, to pay for roads, to pay for pensions, to pay for the infrastructure that so many clamor about. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't wind up as we did last week with a 41 or $40.1 billion deficit. Now, just so we put that in perspective, that's a thousand million times 40. So <laughs> 40,000 million dollars is what we're now having to, you know, to uh, accumulate. Uh, and that's on top of the $1.2 trillion at the federal level alone. I forget the provinces. Uh, so, you know, you've got to sort of scratch your head and start to wonder, this guy can have all the opinions he wants. The guy we call a prime minister. But is he prepared to be that reckless, that naive, that ignorant, that he would, uh, he would uh, turn his back on the thing the world has been demanding and clamoring Canada produce more of. And I'm not just talking part of the world that might be dirty. I'm talking about Germany. These are the guys that led for many years yeah. the whole yeah. thing, the green policy. So, you know, you got to just say the world is upside down and uh, people who don't recognize just how out of proportion, how to whack this prime minister and his caucus and cabinet are really has to quit, start to scratch their head and wonder what is the priority so, of this government for we've t- we've talked about this forever it seems uh dan like is this now gaining traction i mean is is the is it finally hitting the fan here or is this just more rhetoric oh no it's hitting the fan and you're going to see that so now that the uh, environment minister uh when he isn't climbing uh you know towers and yeah. uh, trying to uh, take over a premier's house has to finally admit that his carbon tax rebate is going to hurt people. He's finally had to concede that the parliamentary budget officer has been saying for a better part of a year, and I've been saying for several, these carbon taxes are going to hurt the Canadian public, and they're going to hurt consumers, and they're not going to have any appreciable effect on making Canada cleaner. What it's going to do is frustrate the rest of the you know rest of the country. I think Canadians are cluing in, and I think the numbers are starting to tell uh, those who see and go to the grocery store can indeed make the connection with bad public policy and uh, the future of this of, of this country that doesn't look as bright uh, because there, we have nothing that we want. And look, don't take my word for it, Scott. If anybody doesn't believe that Canada, no one's in, that people are now becoming very disinterested in Canada, look at the value of your Canadian dollar versus the U.S. greenback. We have lost significant 
uh, you know, support. We've lost significant value, and that's creating inflation in and of itself. But uh, I digress. The Prime Minister's lost this opportunity, and those of his defenders, his caucus, have a lot to account for, given what they've done to basically ruin a perfectly good country that had the ability to help the world when it needed it the most. Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, a new report from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce urging the federal government to build infrastructure that will make uh, liquid natural gas exploration and extraction and transport more feasible. Uh, man, it was a great idea for DeFasco, but somehow not for the rest of the world. I don't get it. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Scott. He's a master of science in physics, an F-18 pilot, and a Canadian astronaut. Your mission specialist, Jeremy Hansen. Wow. I have never met the man, and I have goosebumps for him. Uh, Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen heading into deep space, part of the Artemis II mission up and around the moon and back, setting the stage for uh, eventual landing on the moon, which I believe is the third Artemis. Uh, Edward Tabara is with us, head Canadian astronaut corpse, and with us now. Edward, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, good afternoon. So tell us what the Canadian Astronaut Corps is, Edward, and, and what is the objective here? What's the role? Well, the Canadian Astronaut Corps is, you know, the core of active astronauts that we have uh, currently at the Canadian Space Agency. So we have four astronauts, um, Jeremy and David Saint-Jacques, as well as, more recently, Josh uh, Kutrick and Jenny Saidi, and uh, of, of the four, only uh, David has had uh, flight, space flight experience. Um, and I'd, I'd be happy to talk about this mission. So can you, uh, did, did you know who was going to be picked or was it any one of those four? Nobody knew who actually was going to make it until the big announcement today. Well, I am, I am the head of the Canadian Astronaut Corps, so yes, I knew. I, you know, my job <laughs> is to make a recommendation to the president. Right. And the president has, you know, the final say. But uh, yes, we have to keep it. We have to keep it. Uh, you know, um, that is that must have been one of the hardest uh, secrets to keep. My goodness, considering yes, what you do, yes, tell yes. us, tell us what yes. type of person makes a great astronaut. Give us a little bit of insight in well, what these people are like. That's a, that's an excellent question. And Jeremy, actually, you know, I hope you get to talk to him at one point, but. He is, you know, an astronaut's astronaut. He's an incredible human being. He's incredibly, hum incredibly humble and selfless. Um, he's always looking out for the, you know, the entire core, not just himself. He's, uh, you know, he'll be a great asset to this mission and to this, uh, to his crew members. Um, this is an important mission. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, first crewed flight of the uh, Artemis program, which is an international multi-mission campaign. Uh, set to create a sustainable uh, lunar presence um, and pave the way for human exploration of Mars. So this is a very, very, you know, historic and important mission. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure um, Jeremy will, will continue to make us proud. He, um, one, one important aspect is really the, the uh, inspiration. So, um, I'm sure he will inspire, a, you know, a new generation of, mm. of, of, of youth, Canadian youth, to consider, you know, careers in in uh, science and technology, and uh, 
and become, you know, the next generation of Canadian astronauts. So, Will, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Edward, but this one's going around. Does the third one actually land on the moon? Yes, that's a plan. So this one will will circle the moon. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to test, just like just like Apollo, all the Apollo uh, missions up to Apollo 11 didn't land on the moon. Uh, this one will not, we're not ready to land on the moon, but we need right. to be able to test all of the systems the vehicle systems, put them through their paces in the, you know, with crew aboard and in the actual environment of deep space. As you know, um, the radiation uh, rate is higher in out in deep space outside of the um, <clears throat> magnetic, uh, the Earth's magnetic field. And, um, you know, we've had... We've had a launch the last November of Artemis One, but we didn't have any people on board, so we didn't have right. any life support system on board. So this time we were going to test the life support system, make sure that it works and it will work for even longer missions uh, eventually, and it'll be able to sustain the astronauts through all of the different phases. For example, when they're sleeping, when their you know metabolism is low, as well as when they're actually exercising, when you know, metabolism is high. It needs to generate the oxygen, breathable oxygen, uh, scrub the CO2, the carbon dioxide, and um, take care of the humidity that's uh, generated by the uh, by the astronauts. So it, it needs also to allow them to, you know, perform a series of, of operations maneuvers that will be uh, necessary for the success of Artemis three and, and, uh, and, uh, later missions and as you mentioned Artemis 3 right now is the one that's uh, planned to land humans on the moon for the first time since 1972 um, but some of the technologies for for that uh, mission are still being developed so you know we'll see when when it actually launches now, do we know Ed if a Canadian will be on that mission for when they do land on the moon well we through our contribution to the what's called the Gateway, uh, which is a space station, a station that will be around the moon, we've earned two missions. One is Artemis II, and the other mission will be to the actual Gateway station. But till up up to now, we have not really contributed enough for a a landing on the moon of a Canadian astronaut. Hopefully, that'll come in the near future. And what will Jeremy Hansen's role be as mission uh, specialist? Put that into layperson terms. What does that mean? Well, the entire crew will 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 share all of the tasks that, uh, like I said, will test all of the various systems uh, of the uh, of the spacecraft. Um, the tasks have not, you know, been defined yet uh but uh but he's you know he's a fighter pilot he's uh he's already participating in some of the development work because this is all mm -hmm. new um so how to you know um maneuver the uh the actual vehicle in space um they're doing they're doing that right now on the ground through simulations but uh, but they'll be able to do that um in space um, with the actual vehicle. So these things can only be tested in space. Um, and uh, he'll, he'll have, uh, uh, you know, his roles and responsibilities defined. The training itself hasn't started yet. It will start probably in the next few months. But uh, um, 
all four astronauts will be very, very busy on a, on such a short flight. It's only a 10, 10 day flight that is uh, chock full of uh, um, operations and, and, and uh, verifications. All right, Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen is going to be heading into deep space, part of the Artemis II mission around the moon and back. Edward Tabara with his head, Canadian astronaut Space Corps, uh, in a very, very uh, excited group uh, today. You must, you guys must be just bes- well beside the moon today. We are, we are over the moon. We're so excited. There's a lot of excitement. If any of, of the of listeners. Uh, you know, listen to the uh, the actual announcement. They really did a fantastic yeah. job. Yeah, um, it was something. All and, right, so, uh, and we're over the moon. We're before, not beside the moon. Before I go, a shout-out yep. shout to my former home, Hamilton. So I spent several years in Hamilton, Ontario. I went to school at McMaster. I did my undergrad and, and master's degree there, so I consider that my former home. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, we will take that, Edward, and thank you so much. I'm sure Hamiltonians were very pleased to to hear this all started at Mac. Thank you, and good luck moving forward. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Edward Tabra with his head of the Canadian Astronaut Corps. I'm mixing metaphor. Beside the moon, you're over the moon. I'll never make it up there, I don't think. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, I meant to bring this out last week and, in, in, you know, news and being what it is, there's just so many things going on. But I wanted to bring this out considering uh, the discussion about uh, interference in our elections uh, and the Chinese Communist Party and allegations of. And um, this was uh, published a couple of weeks ago in the Globe and Mail. Why I blew the whistle on Chinese interference in Canada. Canada's elections. This is an opinion piece written by a national security official. Here's what it says. Listen, when I joined the public service years, uh, public service many years ago, I swore an oath not to party or to person, but to my country, to its democratic institutions and my fellow Canadians. When I first became aware of the significance of the threat posed by outside interference in our democratic institutions, I worked as many uh, unnamed and tireless colleagues to equip our leaders with the knowledge and the tools needed to take Take action against it. Months passed, then years. The threat grew in urgency. Serious action remained unforthcoming. I endeavored alone and with others to raise concerns about this threat directly to those in a position to hold our top officials to account. Regrettably, those individuals were unable to do so. In the time that passed, another election, a federal election, had come and gone, and the threat interference had grown, and it had become increasingly clear that no serious action was being considered. Were still evidence of of senior public officials ignoring interference was beginning to mount. Despite these concerns, the decision to discuss this threat with Canadian journalists was not an easy one. And then, of course, the rest of the article is published. And then from the um, editor-in-chief of The Globe, revelations from the author of this opinion piece formed the backbone of our news stories that uh, there is foreign interference in our political system at all levels of government and across Canada. The facts in those stories, which are just part of our in-depth and years-long reporting on the issue. Uh, however, the individual faces possible prosecution for revealing classified documents. This is a rare moment in which we have granted confidentiality to an opinion writer. We recognize conferring credibility demands a great degree of trust on the part of the 
reader. We believe that publishing this piece strikes a balance uh, between providing readers with more insight into our work and our responsibility to protect individuals' identities and the tradition of shielding sources when it is uh, in public interest. To talk more about all of this, uh, uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin is with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age and is with us now. Jeffrey, your thoughts on this? Man, this just seems to be getting more complicated with every passing day. Uh, what are your thoughts on, and, and this is a couple of weeks old now, but but the whistleblower actually writing a letter that's being published uh, anonymously and, and where this story goes from here? It's a big story now, and it's only going to get bigger, in my opinion. What's happened is that there was pressure, I'm concluding, uh, from inside uh, the security uh, establishment at the federal government level because a number of people felt that there was and is continuing uh, pressure uh, from outside sources to determine the, uh, the impact on the Canadian government. Um, this information in, in the past has always been conveyed to uh, political leaders. The question is, what did those political leaders do once they had that information? And I think that what's going to happen now is that now that the former liberal member of parliament, Han Dong, has decided to sue global television for naming him as being involved with the Chinese government, um, when it comes to court, uh, the judge is going to, in the process of what's called discovery, to ask Global, what is your evidence? And they'll probably ask the, the Globe and Mail, how do you, how did you know that the person who wrote this anonymous article was legitimate? And both the Globe and Global will be obliged to say who these sources are. Now, if they made a promise, which often happens, that they said, okay, do this story for us, give us this information. We in the media promise to keep your identity hidden. And that is the deal that was struck. The question then is, does the government and the law establishment have the right to say, Tell us who gave you this information, and if you don't give us this information, we will hold you in contempt of court. And contempt of court can can involve a fine and can also involve sending people to jail, which is what happens in the United States quite frequently. It has I don't I can't recall an incident where this has happened in Canada. So that's why we're on very uncharted territory. Um, are we assuming here that the whistleblower is the only one that knows the truth of, to the story? At the end of the day, isn't the whistleblower just trying to uh, draw attention to the actual story as opposed to exposing anyone here? I mean, okay, someone says this. Let's dig a little deeper. Oh, my goodness, it's right. I mean, it, we're, we're assuming that he's the only one that knows or she well, and that that's the that's the editorial challenge that news organizations go through. In my time at both CBC and at NPR, I would have reporters come to me and say, we have, I, the reporter would say, I have a tremendous story here and I trust the person who's given me this information. An editor or a manager has an obligation to say, I, I need to know who this person is so we can determine whether we can move forward with this or not. 
And that involves bringing in the lawyers. Now, when the lawyers are involved, there is a client confidentiality issue here. So that if a CBC lawyer is involved in this discussion, then everything that the reporter tells both management and the, the, the CBC lawyer is considered uh, privileged information and may not be shared with anybody else, including a court. Now, the courts in the United States have said, we don't care about that. We want to know who's leaking and we want to know who we can punish for leaking. That hasn't happened in Canada, but this is that's why I say this is uncharted territory and we don't know exactly where this is going to go from here. But it's 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 extremely dangerous for um, investigative reporting in this country. If investigative reporters are being told by their sources, well, I'm not going to give you the story because as you see what happened with global television and the Globe and Mail, they were forced to reveal their sources. So therefore, I'm not going to give you any information. This could be a major setback in how journalism is practiced in Canada. Where do you see this going, Jeff? Oh, boy, if I knew that, I'd be <laughs> I'd be hauled up before the before the judge as well. Um, <laughs> do, you think, do, you, do you have the feel like somebody in CSIS must know who this is? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure they do. And I'm sure yeah. the prime minister knows should know who this is. The question is, are they willing to say, OK, this has gone far enough. We are going to uh, put this person out to dry um, and in order to save our reputations. This is what happened during the war in Iraq in the United States, where the New York Times was told by a journalist who allegedly had impeccable sources that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, including yeah. chemical weapons and nuclear weapons. That reporter failed to reveal to New the New York Times management who that was. And, and so that reporter was jailed for 90 days in the United States until she was willing to say who her source was. And it turned out her source was uh, her lover, who was uh, who was uh, the vice president's chief of staff. So that's tank. why they tried not to reveal it. And it was very embarrassing. And then the reporter was forced to leave The New York Times. It was a big mess. But in the end, the story that was important was that the media in the United States in the follow-up to the war in Iraq was being fed the wrong information. They were being lied to. So there's a lot to unpack here, and that's why this is such an important story for journalism, for civil society in Canada, and for, and for the legal system. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, Senior Fellow, Massey College, former Director of Journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is challenging the use of the Emergencies Act last year. A commission already found the grounds were met for the feds to use, but now it is to be defended in a court of law. To talk more about all of this, Kara Zebel is with us, Director of Fundamental Freedoms, Canadian Civil Liberties Association and with us now. Kara, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
So, Kara, uh, the big question uh, already had the commission on the Emergencies Act. We know what they found. Why would you take it this step farther? So I think that the commission and the judicial review process are, are sort of aimed at, at two different things. Um, and the commissioner himself really acknowledged this in, in his report. He talked about, you know, his finding that there were reasonable grounds to believe that, um, you know, that, that there was a national public order emergency. But he also acknowledged that the, the legality of the use of the act was a question for the courts. And, and that's why this mechanism is important. It is, it's, it's a, it's a subtle distinction and it's a bit, it's a bit technical, but, um, the way I've heard it sometimes described is, is the, the commission looked at whether the decision was justifiable. Um, and the court is looking at whether it was justified. So really whether the reasons that the government put forward, you know, at the time that the emergency was invoked, the reasons that it gave to parliament in defending its decision, were those adequate and did they properly interpret the, the Emergencies Act and the threshold that it set? So what do you hope to discover or learn here through this? I mean, really, this is another venue for accountability for the government. Um, you know, we, we do, we seem to have a different understanding of what threats to the security of Canada means in the Emergencies Act and what the government says it means. And, and so it's important to get a judicial interpretation of, of how to understand that phrase in the context of the Emergencies Act um, and how to determine whether that, that legal threshold is met. So what will happen over the course of these three days and what are you hoping for as an outcome? So um, what will happen today, we, we heard from the federal government on um, they are claiming that uh, the questions uh, that, that are before the court are moot. Um, you know, that basically since the emergency declaration is no longer in place and the orders are no longer in place, the court should decline to, to sort of consider the judicial review. They've also argued about the standing and whether the parties, because it's not just CCLA that have brought an application, there are other groups and individuals that have brought applications. So the government has made arguments about that. Um, the court has said that, that the CCLA does have the public interest sort of standing to bring the case. And on the question of mootness, it, it has reserved its decision, but it's hearing from the parties on the merits. And so one of the groups of um, applicants has gone today, and, and the CCLA has also um, made our submissions today on why we, we think that, you know, the invocation was not lawful under the Act and why we think that the orders in place were unconstitutional. Um, and over the next two days, we'll hear from two more sets of applicants and then ultimately from the government trying to defend its, its position. Um, you know, on the outcome, I, I think, you know, our, our hope is that um, our, our view is accepted by the court that the invocation in this case was not in keeping with what the statute allows for and that the orders in place were, were too broad. Um, they, they reached too far and they were unconstitutional. Um, but even if that result, you know, if we don't get that result, some clarity, some statements from the court about how to interpret the Emergencies Act and how to interpret, in particular, that threshold of threats to the security of Canada is a very useful thing, not just for, you know, looking back at what happened last time, but for future governments to consider in the event they need to, in, in the event they need to make a decision about whether to use the act in this way again. What happens if you are successful in in what you're doing and they rule in your favor? Where does that leave everyone? 
know, um, from a practical standpoint, it doesn't leave us very different than we are right now. Um, of course, yeah. there's no traveling back in time and undoing what was done. Yeah. I think from, you know, really, this is a, a political accountability question. And, um, you know, there are, I think, views on all sides that, that say either, you know, people who feel very strongly that the government was correct in doing what they did, others who feel very strongly that they weren't, and probably some in the sort of mushy middle. Um, and maybe those folks in the mushy middle will be persuaded by uh, what a court decides. You know, but, but ultimately, I think the government, um, you know, the government's actions will be assessed by voters at the next election. This is one of the issues that voters will consider. And probably, hopefully, the court's decision about the appropriateness, the legality, the constitutionality of the government's actions will be something that factors into, to, you know, to voters' decision making. Kara Zweibel with us, Director of Fundamental Freedoms, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. They are challenging the use of the Emergencies Act. Kara, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The latest from uh, the Globe and Mail and Robert Fife and Stephen Chase. The headline is Ottawa stalls on measure to combat uh, foreign interference. Obviously, this has been a huge uh, story over the last little while. Uh, Global uh, Sam Cooper, uh, the MP who he has exposed. Of course, there's litigation there that we're hearing about. Uh, But here's what the article says. For more than nine months, Liberal government has been eyeing a package of measures that could be instrumental in safeguarding Canadian democracy from foreign interference uh, instigated by hostile states such as China, but so far uh, has only moved ahead on one item. Ottawa announced last month that it would hold a public consultations to set up a foreign agent registry uh, that would require people advocating for a foreign state to register their activities, but the government has yet to move on three other significant measures that were presented to the Cabinet last summer, according to government officials to talk more about all of this what it means going forward and and you, you know considering that you know we were talking about the CSIS whistleblower who brought all of this uh, this information or some of it forward um a letter published by an informant from CSIS in the globe just uh, a while ago let's bring in daniel perry consultant summa strategies and is with us now daniel thanks for the time i hope you're well same to you scott so obviously a uh, MP who has decided on legal action and now we're seeing uh, more slowly come out from uh, uh, sources and such, including a letter from uh, allegedly the, the whistleblower in all of this. What are your thoughts on, on where this is going? Do, do, uh, does the government have this under control at this point? I'm reminded from the scene from Anchorman where uh, Anchorman leans back his, in his chair and goes, boy, that escalated quickly. Uh, I think that's where the government's <laughs> at right now. They can't seem to calm this down at all. Anything that they do just keeps flaming it. So I, I think the PMO right now is really in crisis mode because this is something they can't put to bed. And how do you move forward on this if you are them? Uh, obviously still, uh, although everybody loves, uh, David Johnston and, and, and everybody, uh, admires his work and such. Some are very, uh, skeptical about his, his, uh, abilities to get to the bottom of all of this. What needs, what more needs to be done by the government here to, to ease people's fears? be honest with people i think canadians feel like the government keeps misleading them and trying to spin them in different directions and if the prime minister is correct there's nothing to hide from uh his office from his senior staff then just then just come clean and say that 
Uh, for instance, there was a great effort to block his chief of staff from appearing before a committee uh, to discuss this. So if he really wants to make Canadians trust the system, trust him even, then just come clean and have the opportunity for opposition MPs who are very hungry to dunk on this government, ask those questions and just be honest. Where is this going? Um, we remember the uh, with Katie Telford, those wanting her to appear. Where are we with all of that? What, what's the next steps here? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I think everyone's trying to figure that out. Same here. Um, I think next steps is just trying to get to some conclusions so that Canadians can have some faith in their democracy. We saw David Johnson. He's the one who's going to be leading the charge to try to get to the end of this. They thought it was going to be a safe bet, given his ties with the Conservatives and the Liberals, but it's not. So I don't think this is going to go to bed until we get some real answers, to be honest with you. Are, are you surprised David Johnston hasn't spoke up about this? Or, or maybe he has. We're just not hearing that. I mean, he's, he probably certainly doesn't work that way. But he may be apprehensive about this at this point. Or do you think perhaps he'll deliver, nope, this needs a public inquiry. I'm out. You're in. I think it's so politically charged that he's being very strategic and not saying anything. Uh, no matter what he says, someone's going to criticize him for it. And if it's his job to deliver an impartial report where he's trying to solve all the problems that we keep asking, um, I think it's important that he kind of keeps his head down and kind of just tries to get to the end of this so we can get some answers. Uh, as soon as these allegations started, we heard everything from legal action to racism, uh, but none of this seems to be going away. Uh, mm -hmm. Won't lawsuits or, or uh, you know, whistleblowers being targeted or whatever, won't that just bring the truth out quicker? You would think, uh, and I think Canadians want that truth. Like, the, to be fair, the story's been go going on for over a month. Canadians are probably tired about hearing about it, and I'm sure you're tired about talking about it. So if we can actually drill down and get to the bottom of this, because sooner or later there's going to be another election, and I don't think the government wants this to be an election issue. So they're kind of under the gun to kind of get some answers and help Canadians get some more faith into our democracy. It doesn't even seem to be political at this point, Daniel. It just seems to be a lot of mismanagement. Like, who's driving the bus? I mean, politics aside, it's it just seems that there's nobody managing the store. Yeah, it definitely seems like everyone's on vacation. And uh, there's no one really trying to help calm this down. Because like you said, it was racism to begin with. And it was misleading. Then those aren't truth. Um, there just seems to be a lot of confusion. And it honestly seems like no one really knows what it's going on. All the government departments that are responsible for this aren't talking to each other. They're very siloed. The Prime Minister's office, who's trying to put some water on the fire, seems to have gasoline in their fire hose because they keep making it worse. And I think everyone's a little bit worried about how this has gotten out of hand so quickly. And I think everyone would love to see it get reeled back in. But until there's actually some substantive decisions made and some truth comes out and we get some better clarity about the process and how this information a came out and why it didn't come out during the election. I don't think we're going to get anywhere. Uh, we all know that uh, governments love to punt things down the field and just keep uh, delaying, delaying, and hopefully it all goes away and everybody forgets about it. We don't have to answer to any of this again. We're not, okay. I, you know, what happened to Katie Telford? Is she going to testify or not? That sort of thing. Uh, that being said, Daniel, there's another election sooner or later, and that will all pull this back into the spotlight. And that's exactly what this government's concerned about. Delay and deny is a great strategy until voters actually get a say in the matter. And they don't always appreciate that. And when it comes to how they're voting and even thinking that China might be involved with it, 
that's not going to play well with an electorate that's probably getting a little bit tired of Justin Trudeau after a decade, very similar to how the electorate got tired of Stephen Harper. So this could be just another nail in the coffin, if not dealt properly. And so far, it hasn't been dealt properly. Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies and uh, the government and their issues moving forward. Daniel, thanks for the time. As always, be well. You too, Scott. Take care. All right. Uh, we remember a long time ago, Russia decided it was going to uh, take Ukraine and thought it could do so in a couple of days. And obviously that did not happen. And here we are over a year later and uh, the destruction continues and we can't really see a lot of progress. That's for sure. Uh, one thing that has happened is Finland, uh, as well as Sweden, thinking about it, Finland is set to join NATO tomorrow and of course one of the things that uh that putin said he was concerned about was the expansion of nato when in fact his invasion of ukraine has actually driven more people to to think about what finland is doing and that is joining nato for prote- for protection let's bring in arl brown professor international relations senior member of the monk school of global affairs at the university of toronto and is with us now arl thanks for the time hope you're well thank you so Finland in tomorrow, Sweden still a question mark. Why is Finland in and Sweden not at this point? Finland uh, is not viewed by the leaders of Turkey, or Turkey as it's called now, and uh, Hungary as uh, having sufficiently offended the local dictators uh, or to have been harboring dissidents. Uh, from Turkey's particularly Kurdish dissidents. And so, uh, especially in the case of Erdogan, who's facing an election, he wants to appear to be tough. He wants to be able to tell his people that I can uh, order other countries around. I can punish those that uh, try to cause us harm or those who criticize the leadership. And so Finland is, in a sense, the little brother, and uh, Sweden was the big brother, who was the primary target. Uh, If Finland does get in or is going to get in tomorrow, is it just a matter of time before Sweden does? It will make it much easier for Sweden to get in because the pressure will be enormous on Erdogan. If he wins the election, if he loses the election, then his successor may well approve it. And then we'll be just left up to Orban in Hungary, who is already feeling a great deal of pressure from the EU to allow Sweden in. For all intents and purposes, the entry of uh, Finland into the alliance means that uh, the country with which Finland now has an extremely close military cooperation will be functioning as a NATO state, even though formally it is not yet a NATO country. Uh, Obviously, this was the last thing that Putin wanted. Who else? Is there somebody else on the doorstep? in terms of entry into NATO? Yes. Uh, Well, Moldova obviously would like to join NATO, and the Russians have troops in Transnistria, and it's a frozen conflict. They would do everything else uh, uh, that they haven't done so far to try to uh, uh, cause problems, to try to destabilize Moldova, uh, to prevent that uh, from happening. But Finland is formally joining already, if I were in the Kremlin, I would view this as a strategic nightmare because this really alters the equation. The, Finland is a country that is very well armed. It has superbly trained armed forces. 
it can call on massive reserves, even though it has a small population. It has a record of fighting off the Russians uh, for a significant period of the time back in uh, 1940, and they're much better equipped now. And this is an 800-mile-plus border, so uh, uh, Putin uh, uh, will have difficulty explaining this away as something insignificant. Any strategist in the Kremlin, any military leader in Russia knows that this is a terrible outcome for Russia. Uh, we remember at the beginning of this invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin was concerned about Ukraine in a buffer zone between NATO. Uh, and I remember Zelensky saying they weren't interested in joining NATO, meaning Ukraine. Has that changed now? Is it just a matter of time before Ukraine does, considering what they've been through? This is the perverse irony in what uh, Putin has tried to do. Uh, he claimed that it was NATO enlargement. I think it was all about domestic power and his ambition to try to recreate part of uh, uh, the Russian Empire as a way to divert attention away from intractable domestic uh, problems. And so now we have countries that were not inclined to join NATO. If you look at the opinion polls in Finland prior to the Russian invasion, the majority of Finns did not want to join NATO. And... uh, in Sweden, next door, only about 48% at best were willing to join NATO. That has flipped completely because the Russian threat is so dire. And now in the case of Ukraine, the vast majority of the Ukrainian people undoubtedly also want to have NATO membership. And should Ukraine prevail and push the Russians out of Ukraine or push the Russians at least back to their position on uh, the 20. 20- 3rd of February of, of last year, NATO would then have to decide whether they would admit uh, uh, Ukraine. And I think in moral terms, as well as strategic terms, it would be very difficult for NATO to say no. How is Putin reacting to this information? And also understand that um, obviously there's a, a U.S. journalist that's been uh, been taken and also a, a recent bombing in Russia. Uh, so things have, have sort of hit the home front there. Is that changing anything in this discussion, Arl? The Kremlin controls the media in uh, Russia. Most people get their information from television and from the newspapers that they control. So uh, they will be given the best possible uh, optimistic interpretation. And that is that uh, the Kremlin will claim that the membership of Finland is not very significant, that uh, Russia uh, is uh, defending itself, that uh, Russia has no choice in Ukraine, that this is a defensive war, and if anything, even though Finland's membership doesn't change the strategic picture, it is a demonstration of the ill will of NATO, that uh, the ultimate goal of NATO is to to dismantle Russia, and consequently only Vladimir Putin can save Russia. And this has been selling to an extent, but as they sustain greater losses, I think more people will be asking questions, uh, just what uh, sacrifices Russia is making in Ukraine, and why is it that Russia has to defend its sovereignty by invading Ukraine. And what about the um, bombing that took the life of the uh, Russian blogger who was promoting the war and such? How has that resonated within Russia? 
we don't know exactly what happened because this is a very opaque political system and much of the information we have is what the Kremlin has uh, put out. The way the Kremlin is trying to portray this is that Ukraine had a hand in it. That uh, Ukraine, which is not a real country, nevertheless seems to have this far reach. Uh, that the leadership in Ukraine, which is supposed to be incompetent, I think at one point uh, Vladimir Putin called them a bunch of drug uh, adult uh, or adult neo Nazis, somehow seems to be clever enough and effective enough that they can reach deep into Russia, organize an assassination. So um, it's tough to square that circle for the Kremlin. Ara Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We are now finding out that, in fact, that uh, balloon that came in over the Northwest Territories through the northern British Columbia, Alberta, and then down through Saskatchewan into Montana, then across the United States, uh, and going out uh, to the sea by the Carolinas where it was shot down, as, uh, of course, uh, Will Weber has the actual, got the actual live footage of that the moment it went down. Got the fighter pilot's uh, sound there, eh? Uh, anyway, we uh, now find out today that, uh, yes, in fact, it was the Chinese balloon, uh, uh, collecting military signals and sending them back to China in real time and saying that it was controlled and that it was controlled by them. So uh, not the um, not the benign weather balloon that we thought. So there you go. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I'm, just, I'm looking up to see if there's any more balloons flying overhead. I mean, you're, you're, you're surprised that when all of a sudden a whole series of balloons float by that it's not just caught in a draft? Yeah, yeah. And like it, it, <laughs> and everybody was saying, well, it was just floating and, and it had rudders on it. They knew when they shot it down that it was being controlled. But yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, enough of that. Let's talk hockey because I know you're a sports head. I'm not so much. I'm more of a motor head. But, you know, my family's getting into the hockey playoffs now as things are setting up. Uh, that happens in a couple of weeks, I guess. Uh, and, and, of course, you, as I've said before, my boy and my wife are, well, really, it's my wife. And she's just recruited my son. I really believe that. Uh, diehard Boston fan, Boston well, fans. So they've picked well this year. Well, you know, as as one friend said, as one friend said way back when to my boy when he was very young, you know, if you pick the Leafs, you'll be constantly disappointed. At least if you pick the Bruins, uh, every so often you'll have a chance. And anyway, how that has rang true. Uh-huh. But I, I'm, you know, I'm watching the, this team, and we always see the Boston game. We probably see more Boston games than Leafs game. But we, you know, I convince them to watch whatever, whatever. And then of course they just laugh at me and ridicule and what have you. I'm watching the commentators, including. Mark Messier and P.K. Subban and such. They're talking about Boston. And Messier says the team has personality. 
And I've been saying this to my wife forever because I know nothing about hockey. But I, I have played on winning teams, and I know what it takes to do that. And even if you've got every great player in the entire league, that does not guarantee you a win because there is so much heart and emotion involved in every game we play. Am I wrong in saying that the Leafs have been so concerned about getting every best player they could? Everybody played with the best player on the team, not necessarily the best team player, but the best guy on the team or girl on the team when you get a whole team of those you got a bunch of guys that are sitting there more interested in themselves than they are in the rest of the team i'm sure that's not the case i know they all want to win but man this this team is lacking a bergeron a a marchand a marchand whoever they're they're they have no personality i don't know if there's anybody on this team i'd want to have a beer with is See, it me? Well, I think it is you, although um, <laughs> the, although uh, I do think that it has been a work in progress that I think... They that, are boring. They're well, boring to listen to. They're boring to watch. They're so great, they're boring. I, I think the idea of the team that you're talking about, which is a very valid point. I remember back in the Olympics in... Was it Salt Lake City, I think, when they announced Team Canada and everybody was shocked when, you know, because Canada has, you can choose anybody. And one of the guys that made the team was a guy named Rob Zamner, who most even good hockey fans went, ooh. Um, you know, this happens every year with Team Canada. There's one or two guys that no one is expecting to make the team. They can come on and they are happy to play a role that is gritty and not necessarily glamorous, but those, you need those people. You can't all be the star. And, you know, think of another example. If you were putting on a play and you were doing Les Mis, not everybody can be Jean Valjean or Cosette. You need the other people yeah. or you don't have a yeah. play. And it's taken the Leafs a long time under this leadership to get there. Now they've got Ryan O'Reilly who will do that stuff. Now he's injured right now. Yeah. And you've got Atari and you've got a bunch of other guys now all of a sudden who look like they are much better cut out to play that role. Does it mean they're going to win the first round? Uh, I'm not, uh, you know, at this point I would, uh, I've seen enough failure that I'm not betting on anything. But at least they they seem to have recognized now you can't just all be doing the same thing. You need the grinders. You need the checkers. You need the shot blockers. You need guys who are going to come back and back check and commit to that. that that's, that's how you win. Uh, it just seems that they're all brain dead. They just, you know, you know, outside of their own little world and their little video game, they just don't seem to be aware of what's going on. I know that's not the case, but that's what it feels like. And it reminds me, you know, and I think I may have told you the story before. You know, I played high school football as a kid, and we had a junior team that was a championship team for like five years in a row. Then those same players would play the same kids two, three, four years later in senior and lose with the exact same team playing the same teams. The only thing that was different was the coach. And at the end of the day, I remember meeting the coach. He goes, I just don't, this was after I graduated, I just don't get it why the same group of play, players can, uh, you know, play one year and win and then the next year against the same group of guys lose. And I'm looking, and I'm looking at the guy like he's got a square head because he was talking about sports psychology. And it's like, because nobody liked playing for you. It was no fun. And that was, re and like, and that's really 
really what it, it what it turns out to be. I well, mean, I remember I remember winning every game and losing the last one. You know why? Because we didn't know how to lose. We we just weren't coached. There's, and there's, I mean, if it's no fun, if it's no fun, if there's no desire, if there's no killer instinct, it ain't gonna happen. And there's such a balancing act there because look, the last couple of years, the Blue Jays, for example, have had a ton of fun. They had the home run jacket. Yeah. They had the sunflower season. They got rid of the jacket, yeah, because they were having too. It seemed as though yeah. things were not serious enough. So it's a real yeah. balancing act to try and find where that is. Uh, he, here's the thing with the Leafs, and you know how much I love making predictions. I absolutely hate it. But I will say this. I do believe that when the day finally comes, and who knows when it might be, that the Leafs get over the hump of finally winning their first playoff series they're not going to squeeze their sticks so tightly that sawdust falls out anymore. And they <laughs> may go on a really nice run. Now, they do have to run into the Bruins in all likelihood in the second round, which is a huge problem. But I think the Leafs have the talent. It's at the point now where the expectations are so daunting that they know that if they lose a game, the world, the sky is falling, everything yeah. is crashing in upon them, that everyone's believing they're going to lose. If they can get past a round, you, I, I almost think that they can do something here. Now, let me. I know you got to run, but let me just go back to your very first point because of the friend who said, "Choose the Bruins and you'll have fun. Choose the Leafs and you'll, you know, you'll always be in pain." That's true. However, the example I will use is the Chicago Cubs. They live for a hundred and eight years with. With intellectual and emotional <laughs> kidney pain, they had kidney stones in their brains for a hundred and eight uh, years. When they finally win, and and look, Scott, uh, unless the world comes to an end sometime soon, it is statistically likely the Leafs at some point will finally win. <laughs> it may be fifty more years. It may be a hundred more years. The, the chances are they will. That will be. Double the pleasure, double the fun when they finally come through for those fans who have just suffered incessantly through all this. I we may not be, we may it. not be alive. Yeah. Yeah. We may be all be gone, but for whoever's still alive, it's going to be a glorious moment. There you go. There's a message to all you unborn right now. All right, Scott Radley, host of the Scott <laughs> yeah. Radley Show, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up after the six o'clock news. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Roy, not green, wrote in to say, love your show. You're right. Government is getting rich off the back of the environment. Hey, where did the tire tax money go? And what are they doing with the carbon tax money? 